and welcome to the Real Weird Podcast. October 8th, Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Hello everyone, so thanks for joining me here today. We're It's going to be a bit of a long one just because we're going over another uh, long, longer franchise just like we did yesterday with Friday the 13th. Now we're going with Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, if you can hear a sort of like... Sh- low rumble in the background. I uh, hope you can forgive that. That's just my, um, that's just a little fan I have running. It's really humid when I'm recording this, but yeah, we're going to be talking about Nightmare on Elm Street. So first off, I just want to give a little bit of the history of the conception before it. Um, you know, this is one of the big three of the slasher franchises, along with Halloween and uh, Friday the 13th. It's really what kind of set the, you know, sort of golden age standard that would later be parodied to no end in Scream and a whole bunch of other more out-and-out comedic movies. But... So, the first thing, because this was the thing I found the most... Uh, interesting regarding with uh, Freddy Krueger himself was just the sheer amount of influences that Wes Craven had when he was coming up with him. So, apparently what I've been... So from what I've been told, the name came from a childhood bully that Wes Craven had to deal with. And he said the idea came from seeing a very elderly man walking on the sidewalk outside the window of his home. And he stopped to glance at Craven, and Craven was, like, really railing at this point. And he just recalls being really spooked by him. And initially, Kruger was supposed to be a child molester who got released on a technicality instead of a murderer. Uh, Apparently the reason that... Apparently the reason he changed it was because there was a spate of, like... There was a bit of mass hysteria in California at the time. There was some, like, highly publicized uh, molestation cases, but it was... A lot less were actually substantiated than were claimed. So he changed that to avoid being accused of exploiting the sort of panic about it. Um, actually, the funny thing is that Freddy also shares, sort of shares his name with the villain Krug from Last House on the Left. That's just a shortening of Kruger, which, you know, again, was a school bully. And apparently he chose to give... Freddy, the sort of red and green sweater that he had after reading an article in Scientific American that said, just from a visual standpoint to the human retina, these are the two most clashing colors there are, so I guess it was just to make his appearance look a little more garish. And the concept was the whole part of him Sorry, 
the whole part of Freddy killing people in their dreams and then dying from real, well, there were a bunch of articles printed in the LA Times in the 1970s about refugees from uh, the Hmong ethnic group in Southeast Asia. And they were fleeing to the U.S. as refugees because of the war and some genocide going on in Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. And a lot of them were supposedly. So... were so traumatized by the stuff they had seen that they had disturbing nightmares to the point where they refused to sleep. And... Essentially, it weakened them to the point where sometimes they'd fall asleep and then they'd have a heart problem or something like that and they would just die. So Craven, apparent, so Craven said that... So was basically said that between that and some influence from some studies of like Eastern religions, so I'm guessing Buddhism and some native beliefs from like Southeast Asia was the influence he got for most of this. It's also, and going back to that story about the old man, uh, Wes Craven stated about Freddy's nature that he's kind of meant to be a child's worst fear that he's the old as the adult that's about to get him. He likens him to Cronos uh, from Greek mythology. The you know, the story, he's afraid he's going to be overthrown by one of his kids, so he ends up eating all of them. It's an evil and twisted father figure that's meant to go out and try and destroy the kids rather than protect them and raise them like you're supposed to. He also wanted to distinguish Freddy from, you know, Jason, Michael, Leatherface. As he recalled in 2014... He said, I wanted my villain to have a mask, but also be able to talk and taunt and threaten. So I thought of him being burned and scarred. And I I have heard like conflicting stories about this, but I have also been told that the the reason for the claw glove, you know, the knives for fingers, I've been told that came from like him looking at a cat, but you know, I haven't been able to find that anywhere, so I don't know where it is. But he did around but he did apparently for a time consider a sickle as the weapon of choice. But eventually I think he just settled on the glove because it just looked a little more flashy, I guess. And it was a, and this was actually the first production for uh, New Line Cinema Corporation. Up to this point, they had only been film distributors. So, so Craven actually took the script to a few other places beforehand. Hilariously enough, he actually took it to Disney first. They wanted him to, they liked it, but they wanted him to tone down the horror to make it suitable for at least like older children and preteens, Craven obviously declined because, you know, it's a fucking horror movie. He also took it to Paramount Studios. 
Um, they passed on the project because there was a, another movie coming out relatively recently called Dreamscape, which is a sort of dark fantasy. It's not a horror, but it's like a dark fantasy. It has a similar kind of premise with and some elements to it. Universal Studios passed it down, turned it down anyway. And apparently Craven was in very desperate personal and financial straits around this time, and apparently he framed the company's rejection letter on the wall of his office. So he took it to New Line. So, like I said, they only had they had only ever distributed films up to that point. This was the first um, production they had done. Their distribution deal fell through, and for two weeks it was unable to pay the casting crew. But, you know, obviously this this movie's become kind of iconic in pop culture, especially if you're in the horror scene, to the point where A Nightmare on Elm Street is sometimes also referred to by the studio as the house that Fred means that the studio is sometimes referred to as the house that Freddie built because it was the big movie that got them off the ground. But they did have to get some of the... They did have to get outside help with raising the money. So they got, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. One of their producers contributed. Um, Media Home Entertainment, which was a home video distributor, kicked in on some. And they found a couple investors from England. Uh, one of them backed out, but uh, Media Home made it made up the difference. And according to Robert Shea, um, quote, all the film, he said all the film's original investors backed out at one point or another during pre-production. The original budget was 700000 I'm quoting Shea here now directly. The funding, it ended up at $1.1 million. Half the funding came from a Yugoslavian guy who had a girlfriend he wanted in movies. So, some of the other people that were considered for Freddy as the actors, um, Uh, David Warner was originally cast, and to the point where there were actually makeup tests done, but he had to drop out during doing schedule conflicts. Um, originally, Kane Hodder, funnily enough, was actually supposed to uh, one of the people Wes Craven talked to, but he later said that. But uh, Hodder eventually said that he liked the way Robert Englund just projected himself. As he said on Hills Have Eyes, it's not the bigness of the villain that's paid off, it's the, well, bigness of the evil, basically, that the actor can project onto the screen. And, you know, Hodder said that, and even Kane Hodder said that while he would have loved to have been Freddy, he thinks that West made the right call with giving it to Robert Englund. I actually heard from like one story that I think Steve Buscemi <laughs> was actually uh, supposed to 
was actually auditioning too. I'm going to be honest, if they ever do a remake of this, if they couldn't get Anglin back, I'd love to see Buscemi or honestly even Willem Dafoe take a swing at the role. I think they'd both be really good. But yeah, you just... There's just something about Robert Englund that just makes him like really good at it. And I always find it kind of funny that he's so good at this. And the cast and crew said that Robert was such a nice guy that the hardest part was like getting him to shut up long enough to put his makeup on. Um, as far as some of the like other people that came in, um, like Nancy, you know, who is our final girl here. I'm sure it must have been really satisfying for her because she, because Heather Langenkamp was only in like a TV movie and a few commercials at this point. And she had taken some time off from her studies at Stanford College to continue acting. And she was already known to Annette Benson, who was one of the crew on this, for auditioning for A Night of the Comet and Last Starfighter. And on both cases, she lost out to. Catherine Mary Stewart. Uh, some of the other actresses that were uh, considered included, you know, Demi Moore, Courtney Cox, who obviously would later work with Wes on uh, the Scream movies. There were no, there weren't any separate auditions for Nancy or for Tina, so a lot of the people that were. So a lot of the actresses that got turned down for Nancy got called back to try out for Tina. And as far as... Um, as far as her boyfriend, Glenn, you know, notably, this was, like, Johnny Depp's first, like, feature film. Uh, I think he might have had, like, some minor uncredited roles, but this was... <laughs> This was, like, his first, like, feature film, and he plays it pretty well, um, especially considering he was a 19-year-old relative unknown. And funnily enough, his uh, friend Jackie Earl Haley, who has also tried out for the role, would actually be, oh, God, would eventually play Freddy in the 2010 remake, which... I mean, he did an okay job, but that movie was kind of shit, but we'll get to it. <laughs> Apparently, like, uh, Glenn was written as sort of like this big, blonde, kind of jock football player guy, but one of Wes's daughters actually picked Depp's headshot from the set he showed them. Uh, some of the other people that were considered for that role... Because... It wasn't so much him as his agent was demanding, like, that his agent was demanding too much money. Although, you know, Sheen himself has said that's not true, but, you know, I don't know. Some of the other people that uh, were considered were uh, Mark Patton, who would play, you know, Jesse Walsh in the sequel. John Cusack, Brad Pitt, Kiefer Sutherland, uh, Nicolas Cage, and C. Thomas Howell. But 
Well, okay. Those last few were mentioned over the years, but Benson has failed to definitely recall all of them. So I'm guessing So I'm guessing those were probably just stories and they weren't exactly supposed to be Okay, I just uh, what I'm I'm sorry if I'm stammering. It's just uh I've never been able to like concretely find out if any of them did audition, but at least some of them were reported to have auditioned for that role. So yeah, filming began in and around LA, even though this is supposed to take place in like middle of Ohio. But, you know, started in June of 1984, went on for a little over a month. It's funny because it's not too gory of a movie aside from like that one sequence where, you know, spoiler alert, Glenn dies. Um, but yeah, they had to use like 500 gallons were used. And this is a fun little side note. Uh, Jesus Garcia or Nick Corey, as he was going by at the time, uh, the guy who plays, uh, Rod Lane, Tina's boyfriend. Apparently there was something that came out a lot later was that he was dealing with, uh, depression. He recently became homeless at the time. And Heather Langenkamp apparently later said that, you know, he thought, she thought that he was just giving a really, really good performance. You know, his, you know, he was red in the face. He was tearing up. No, apparently he was just snorting heroin in between takes in the bathroom. (laughs) I don't know. It's just something about these like older movies where you find out, oh yeah, this person was like, high out of their mind on set and just either no one noticed or no one cared. (laughs) And it just ended up looking really nice. Uh, I'm not going to go over too much of the first movie just because like, I mean, you're, it's kind of old and really, it's just because so many people have probably seen at least the first one when it comes to seeing these slasher movies. But apparently, uh, the ending, which has always confused me, apparently that was just the, apparently some of the original endings were Craven wanted it to have a more evocative ending. Nancy kills Kruger by just sort of like forcing herself to not believe in him. And then she awakens to find out that the whole thing was just an elongated nightmare. But Robert Shea wanted like a twist ending. Kruger disappears and all seems to have been fine. And just find out that it was like a multi-layer, like inception layer dream. And according to Craven, um, it was supposed to be, that it has Nancy come out the door. It's unusually cloudy and foggy. Car pulls up. All of her friends are in it who are dead at this point. She's kind of startled. She goes out, gets in the car, wondering what the hell's going on. They drive off. The mother's just left standing on the doorstep, and that's it. Shay wanted Kruger to be driving the car and have the kids screaming, which, you know, no spoilers, 
which, you know, minor spoiler, kind of happens at the beginning of uh, uh, Nightmare Nightmare Part 2. And I think at the end, although it's been a while since I've actually sat down and watched that one. But, you know, Craven didn't like that. And according to him, they thought of like five different endings. And I'm quoting him here directly. The one we used with Freddy pulling the mother through the doorway amused us all so much we couldn't not use it. But, you know, every... But yeah, if you've seen the ending, you know what Heather Langenkamp means when she says that there was always a feeling, there was always a sense that Freddy was the car. Like, you know, the top comes up and the windows just come up and she can't roll them down. The top's got, like, the pattern on Freddy's sweater. And I don't think it's ever explained, but, like, you know, we'll get to, like, Dream Warriors later, but it's only mentioned and it's, like, never explicitly said what happened to the mom. She's just dead. But, you know, it's got the famous, like, you know, jump rope rhyme. It was actually made by uh, Langenkamp's boyfriend at the time, Alan Pasqua. Other than that, it's just a pretty uh, well-made horror track, I think. I can't even really hum it just because it's kind of, like, you know, laid back and kind of dreamy. You know, like, not the nurse, not the little rhyme thing that the little girls are doing when they're jumping rope, but, you know, the sort of... uh, electronic music that's playing whenever Freddy's nearby when it's going through the credits and stuff like that. But yeah, this was like, this was 1984 though, so this one got cut down a little bit more than some of the other ones. Uh, An uncut version wouldn't see a home release in the U.S. until 1998, until 1996. And even the theatrical one had like 13 seconds of cuts in the U.S. But weirdly enough, at the same time that the U.K. had its little video nasty scare, this one was released theatrically and on home video completely uncut. And I'm assuming that might have had something to do with the fact that New Line, you know, had at least a bit more clout than some of the distributors for the other movies that did get banned. But yeah, getting into some of the themes, it's just, you know, there's the stereotypical like slasher cliches that get poked fun at by Wes later, just because, you know, everyone does it. But, you know, there's... Freddy's actions have usually gotten interpreted as sort of symbolic of like adolescent trauma. You know, Nancy's got... She's kind of the typical like movie teenager. She's got some kind of social anxiety... She's got a strained relationship with her parents. There's a lot of, like, weird Freudian shit. And, you know, as we mentioned, Freddy was originally supposed to be... His backstory was supposed to be that he was a molester that was killed by a mob, not a murderer. As, And there is also that whole thing that... There is a whole thing that the, you know, it's a whole sins of the father thing. 
parents fucked up and now the kids are paying for it. Like Robert Englund himself says in Nightmare on Elm Street, all the adults are damaged. They're they're alcoholic, they're on pills, they're not around, or they distrust the other or they distrust the kids of the other parents. Um to the point where uh Renee Blakely, the lady who plays uh Nancy's mom, like she herself has said that in some ways the parents are almost villains themselves in the movie. Just, you know, they're not as flashy as Freddy. <laughs> but yeah. There's just a whole bunch of scenes where it's like the parents know that something freaky is going on, but they don't want to admit what's going on. And I think also it's just maybe they just don't want to believe in what's happening because, you know, they burned this guy to death and now suddenly he's coming back and his name is being referenced by kids who were not even, who were either not alive or were way too young to have known about him. So, yeah, this one went the way that all the other ones did. <laughs> it was it was really, really popular. It was really successful. And there was never an intention to make a sequel originally. So, Wes didn't work on it. And so Wes didn't work on the new one. Robert Englund only came back because the guy that they hired to replace him, because originally he wanted what they deemed to be too much money, didn't test very well. So he came back, and this is kind of the reason why Freddy's Revenge is kind of the black sheep of the family. So, like I mentioned, uh, Matt... um, Not Matt Walsh, fuck that guy. (laughs) Sorry. But uh, Mark Patton who, as I said, auditioned for Glenn, Glenn Lance, um, came back and is playing Jesse Walsh in this one. Uh, the Walsh family has moved into the Thompsons family's old house. Um, this one has a bit of a following for a bunch of reasons, but it's, I, am, I really don't like this one. <laughs> It's visually interesting. It's got cool kills in it. It's got cool effects. But overall, it's just really boring. It does a bunch of weird random shit that doesn't really make any sense for Freddy. Like, there's scenes where, you know, it's implied he's making, like, a toaster catch on fire or make a bird explode. And it's like, okay, the idea that he could, that his dreaming things could affect animals too is a little weird, but I'm willing to accept that. But how can he just affect the like, real world when there's no one in the area sleeping. Like, that was... His whole thing was killing you through your dreams. That's not... That's not how it works. And it's kind of the... It's kind of the difference between, like, this and Friday the 13th was that... Friday the 13th, they didn't know what the hell they were doing for the first handful of the movies. And already, the upsetting thing with this one is, like... You know, they're breaking the rules on the se- on the first sequel... Like, and this one was pretty much immediately retconned until Freddy vs. Jason came out. And I think the only reason they referenced it there was because they needed a reason as to why Freddy could possess people. 
because he actually does that in this one. And the worst part is that it completely breaks the effects because he doesn't even possess someone at one point. He just materializes at a pool party and just starts killing people. And again, he's not in a dream, so he shouldn't really be able to manipulate anything. But he's, like, making the water in the pool boil. He's making, like, the... He electrifies the fence when they try to get out. He makes the, like, grill just have a flare-up. He basically just turned into a skinnier Jason is the problem there. And this was the big... um, Yeah, this, this is part of the reason why it's kind of, like, iffy and has a bit of a following. There's a lot in this... There's a lot in this movie that got either... It kind of got criticized or laughed at because of what was seen as, like, really homoerotic subtext. And... There is, like, an argument to be made that maybe the character Jesse is a, like, that he is gay and he's just very, very repressed. Like, he runs into his gym teacher at when he goes to, I'm not going to get into why he does this in the movie, but he goes to a fetish club. He flees to a male friend's house after he just, like, gets cold feet making out with his girlfriend. And, you know, obviously he's in a role that was in a, in this subgenre is so often written as female. Like, he's a guy, he's a male character, but he's in the role of the final girl here. Um, it has become a sort of a cult film for gay audiences just because of that. And, you know, I get it. There's not a long... There's not a vast number of movies you can really pull from, but with this one, <laughs> I I remember watching the Never Sleep Again documentary about the franchise. David Chaskin refers to a 2009 list on Crack.com, and it's called The Five Most Unintentionally Gay Horror Movies. <laughs> And this one was number one, and it states, and I quote, there is nothing logical that can explain the level of homoeroticism in this movie. But, you know, there's also some more things you can you know, point to. Jesse is rarely fully clothed. He's got a sort of gender-ambiguous name. It's one of those ones like Taylor that can be, you know, one way or the other pretty common. It's not like... It's not like any of those names where it's like usually either a guy or a girl. He's also rarely fully clothed. He has the there's a very long scene where there's a very like where there's a wrestling match and because this is an eighties movie, they are like glistening with sweat. <laughs> and the scene where his like the scene where his uh, gym teacher gets killed includes this scene where, like, he's tied up and Freddy's just, like, doing the whole, you know, towel whip thing on his bare ass. <laughs> but...
But there is a scene where it's just, yeah, and Mark Patton has claimed that it was increasingly emphasized through script rewrites. It kind of was subtle at first and then just became undeniable. And, you know, there's some other scenes where he's like, you know, lying in bed, candles are dripping and they're just bent over and there's just, you know, white wax coming down. You can guess what that's suggestive of. And I mean, I do joke, but I really do feel bad for, you know, Mark Patton having to put up with this shit because, like, the filmmakers... The filmmakers knew that he was gay, but in the closet. So they kind of, so he did kind of feel like he was kind of being, you know, tormented over this. And he was still kind of, you know, worried about being typecast that way because he had done a similar role uh, in a comedy drama like the year before. Actually, no, he had been typecast basically. It really did call attention to what he was basically trying to avoid discussing with a lot of people. He particularly blames I he particularly blames the writer David Chaskin who basically tried to say that all of it was just how Patton played the role, not everything else that he had written into the script. Yeah, there's a quote here it's like I love when he uses the word subtext. Did you actually go to a freshman English course in high school? This is not subtext, is what Chaskin said to it. And he said, you know, frankly, you know what? I agree, Chaskin. It's not subtext when it's this fucking blatant. He denied for years that there was gay subtext in the screenplay. And yes, he actually told a reporter that Patton had simply played the part, and I'm quoting him directly here, too gay. The stress of this actually led Patton to leave acting afterwards and get a career as an interior decorator. He has... Okay, he has continued to maintain that the interpretation of Jesse were choices that Patton made, but he has reached out and tried to apologize to Patton over the years. Limited success is from what I've been told. But I'll be fair to Chaskin. Um, he has said that it was a choice on his part as well, but it was for what I can say at least sounds like a good idea. Or, okay, maybe not. <laughs> but I don't know. I'm just going to read it off and... Any of you can make your own decisions. I really... He says, and I'm quoting him here again, homophobia was skyrocketing, and I began to think about our core audience, adolescent boys, and how all of this stuff might be trickling down into their psyches. My thought was that tapping into that angst would give an extra edge to the horror. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I don't know how like good of an idea that is, but I don't know. I mean... I suppose in an age when, like, I suppose back in the 80s when it was, like, people were still getting institutionalized for being gay, even though it hadn't been considered a mental illness for, like, over a decade at that point. But I can imagine that working. I don't know if that would really help people cope with it. (laughs) I really don't think it would. But you can decide for yourself whether or not that's 
a good idea or anything. And I should mention that... That there was one scene that got toned down that would have made it even more apparent. There's a scene in the movie where Freddy just kind of like, you know, caresses Jesse's lips with one of his like claws. But he was actually supposed to like insert one of it into his mouth. But Patton didn't feel comfortable with it. And apparently the film's makeup artist actually suggested to Patton that he'd not do it because he wanted to protect his image. And, I mean, England, England himself has also said that it's obviously intended. You know, early 80s, it's pre-AIDS paranoia. And, you know, I'm still on the fence about whether or not it's supposed to be Jesse is in the closet, but, you know, he's wrestling with whether to come out or not, and it's kind of manifested by Freddy. And he thinks that it's why they cast Patton in that role, too, because he had already been kind of typecast in that way. And I really don't... I don't want to rag on Jack's shoulder about this. He's a good... He's a good director. I just actually watched uh, his movie Alone in the Dark, another really good Donald Pleasance movie. But... He said that he never had any discussions with Chaskin or anyone about it, about having a gay subtext in the script. And he said that it was just supposed to be about, you know, the kind of repressed sexual angst that you get when you, you know, start going through puberty. And I mean, I can believe people when they said that they never interpreted it that way when they started filming, but there were creative decisions that both uh, shoulder and Jaskin made that kind of made it a little more apparent when the movie was finished. But I don't know. I mean, it's not. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, never sleep again is a good documentary. If you want to watch it, uh, it's like four hours long. So just be ready for that. Um, there's another one called scream queen, my nightmare on Elm street, which is actually a, produced and starred by Mark Patton himself, which focused on it and how it affected him. Uh, Mark Patton, I mean. But, you know, it's not like... It's not like toning it down would have saved the movie because there's just so much, like, weird shit other than that going on that just doesn't make any sense with, like, Freddy's backstory. Um, So, yeah, I guess we're just going to move on to... Dream Warriors, because I didn't intend to spend 40 minutes on the first two movies. Uh, but yeah, Dream Warriors is the third one. It's it's what I, and apparently a lot of other people, consider to be the best out of the sequels. It picks up a few years after the events of the first movie. Again, completely ignores the second one. Uh, Lieutenant, eh, Lieutenant Donald Thompson, who's you know Nancy's dad, played by John Saxon. He's retired now. Nancy is a psychiatrist at Weston Hills. And, okay, if you haven't seen any of the sequels, I'm going to suggest you uh, come back 
later, uh, just because I will be spoiling this one. But I just want to get some cool things out of the way first. We get a little bit more of Freddy's backstory, and we get an early role from uh, Lawrence Fishburne, you know, Morpheus from The Matrix, for those that don't know him by name. We get some cool, like, fight-back sequences with the intended victims this time. We got some really cool visuals from Kevin Yeager. And, honestly, this one just had a lot more, like, creative and, like, thematic kills. I think one of my... You know, my personal favorite is that it takes place at, like, this... At Weston Hills, it's this sort of uh, mental hospital. It's got, like, a whole bunch of, like, teens that were committed for various reasons. And there's this one who's kind of, like, sullen and withdrawn, and she has, like, dreams of being, like, a TV star. And in the dream, like, Freddy's head and arms just pop out of the TV on the... out of the TV side, and she and he just, like, smashes her head into the screen. You know, famously with "Welcome to Prime Time, bitch." <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing. That's another thing I really love about these ones is that Freddy always has like funny quips that he makes before a lot of the kills. It's kind of unnecessary at points, but it just it shows that there's a little bit more like thought put into these ones. I think, but yeah. So I'm just gonna. This is where the spoilers part come in. And we get a new final girl in the form of Kristen Palmer, played by Patricia Arquette, who who only makes it from this one to the one after, Dream Master, which is the fourth one. And I mean, to top it all off, she's not even played by the same actress. (laughs) She gets replaced by uh, Tuesday Night, who's... Yes, that's her actual name. It's Night as in, like... You know, Dark Knight, I guess. Uh, but originally, it's uh, Patricia Arquette. The, you know, sister of David Arquette. I think Ellie Cornell from Halloween 4 and 5 was actually auditioning for it. I mean, I think it was either, you know, she got passed over for it or she already was cast in Halloween 4 and couldn't commit. It was one or the other. I don't really, I couldn't really find out. But essentially, But essentially, this takes place a year after the events of Dream Warriors. Uh, The characters Kristen, Kincaid, and Joey have all been released, so they're back to their normal lives. And Kristen is repeatedly worried that Freddy's going to come back somehow. And I don't know if they established this, but I think it might just be that her worrying so much about Freddy coming back actually is what made him come back, but I'm not sure about that. If that's supposed to be what it was, I don't think they really uh, telegraphed that pretty well. 
As a fun little side note, this is also sometimes called the MTV Nightmare because it had a more orchestral original score on one of the music sets, but another one of the music sets just had a lot of like pop and rock songs uh, from around that time. Yeah, the way they kill off Freddy in this one is actually kind of weird. It's kind of interesting as well. But the title, uh, the Dream Master, refers to a nursery rhyme inside in the context of the movie. And I guess it's just that Freddy just eats everyone's souls when he kills them. But Alice recites it. And kind of makes Freddy look at his own reflection and it causes all the souls in him to revolt. And it just kind of tears him apart. Leaves him as a husk. Yeah, it's it's weird. And it gets weirder with the dream child. Hey, quick edit here. I just realized listening back to this that I didn't explain who Alice is. Alice Johnson. She's played by Lisa Wilcox. She is the new final girl for this and the dream child. Just wanted to get that out of the way in case you're like, who the fuck is this Alice girl? But yeah, she's the new one. Um, again, spoilers, Kristen dies at some point in this movie. I'm trying to go off notes and realize that maybe I didn't take enough. So there's that. Anyway, moving on to dream child. So, this one is a lot darker tonally than the previous films. There's this sort of blue filter technique that's used in it. And this one was 1989, so this was like one of the last slashers released in the 80s. It got mostly negative reviews from critics, as you might imagine. It's a steep decline from the last two movies in terms of box office, but it's still the highest grossing slasher that year. And yes, the Halloween fan in me is weeping over that. (laughs) But again, a year after the previous film, um, Alice and Dan are dating. And this is where we get a a lot more where Freddy's backstory comes up in I think originally it comes up in Dream Warriors but it comes up really here it's actually kind of important for this one so essentially Freddy's backstory is partially the story of his conception was that his mother was a nun named Amanda Kruger working at the asylum and she was uh, I'm sorry I'm just gonna I'm just going to flat out say it because there's no way I can really say it any better. She was basically gang raped by a lot of the inmates to the point where Freddy is known as the bastard son of a hundred maniacs. So Amanda has a, sorry, not Amanda, Alice has a vision of herself in Amanda's shoes and she wakes up in the middle of that. And we find out eventually that 
Um, Alice is actually pregnant, and this is where a dream child comes in. Because I don't know if this has any real... I don't know exactly what this would be in terms of like scientific accuracy, but I guess when fetus get when a fetus gets to a certain point, it can have something that's similar to a dream. So this has all so this causes Freddy to basically use Alice's unborn child as a sort of tether, which gives him this weird ability to basically not just affect like other people when he kind of uses it as sort of like a proxy server, basically. So whenever he attacks someone else, like Alice basically just gets a vision of it, even though she's awake. But And it's also kind of implied that maybe Freddy's using the kid as a sort of way to like get a physical body again. And there's a lot, and again, there's a lot of really creative kills. There's this one where, uh, guy basically dozes off while driving and he imagines himself on like a motorcycle. And Freddie just kind of like fuses him with, the motorcycle, and there's just all these weird, like, wires and bolts coming out of him. <laughs> it's really kind of gross looking. There's this one where he pulls someone else into, like, a comic book world, and Freddy turns him into a paper cutout and just slashes him to pieces. Uh, and again, like, some of the kills are kind of thematic. Like, there's this one... There's this one girl who's, like, being pressured into, like, a modeling thing by her mom. So she's on, like, a really strict diet. And the dream sequence, you know, it's obviously ambiguous where it starts, but it kind of has her coming into a big uh, feasting, like a banquet, with her mother and some guests. And Freddie kind of, like, appears as a chef serving and he, like, straps her to the chair and makes her eat these things that look like her own organs while the guests are just laughing. So, you know, it's demented, but it really, you know, there's relevant themes here with some of the kills. It, um, it, it does at least have the benefit where some of the kills are kind of referencing aspects of that character anyway. I wouldn't say karmic punishments, but... I don't know, symbolic punishments, I guess. Uh, it's a weird whole sequence with how they kill Freddy off this time. But it's this weird dream sequence where uh, Alice basically sees like a possible future version of her son. Uh, Jacob and Jacob kind of refuses Freddy's you know offers so it kind of just dispels him 
and Amanda's spirit kind of seals Freddy away. So, you know, several months later, they're enjoying, they're all enjoying a picnic together. And it zooms out, and hinting Freddy's going to come back again at some point, the film closes with uh, some children jumping rope nearby and humming Freddy's theme. Yeah, it's, I do kind of like the fact that, um, I do kind of like the fact they're always teasing the idea of Freddy coming back, even though it's kind of stupid at points, but yeah, it's the final product was not really, It's not really great. And even the director, Stephen Hopkins, has said it. There was an interview where he was promoting, you know, Predator 2. And he said it was a rough schedule. There was no, it was an unreasonable budget. And after he finished it, New Line, between New Line's edits and the MPAA's cuts, it was an okay film with a few good bits turned into a total embarrassment. And he says he can't even watch it himself anymore. I mean... I don't think it's that bad. It's certainly not the worst of the bunch, but you know, you gotta you gotta feel for the guy that it's he was under pressure to get this thing made. He didn't really have the resources, and then they just picked apart what's left. But whether or not it's the worst one, you know, I always leave to people that get into these movies whether or not how they rank them. Because aside from, because the next one we're going to be talking about is the is the sixth and what was supposed to be the final installment um, of the series is Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. It was released in 1991 and it was New Line's a bit of trivia, it's New Line's first 3D film release. And although compared and although it was financially successful compared to Dream Child, you know, this is this one got horribly panned uh, by critics to the point where I think most of the fandom actually considers this to be like the worst of the original series, it's either this or Freddy's Revenge, usually. Um, you know, you've got some cameo appearances by Johnny Depp, Roseanne Barr, Tom Arnold, Alice Cooper. Um, but kind of like... It just says set 10 years from now, which, you know, no real hint as to how it fits in with all the other movies. But, you know, there's a sort of, there's a sort of, there's a sort of John Doe character that comes in. He has no memory. He wakes up just outside the Springwood city limits. It's another one of these like troubled youth center 
it's another one of the troubled youth center setups. You've got Spencer, who's this like stoner who's trying to resist his dad's attempts to get him to conform. Seems like that's the only reason he's there, honestly. You've got Tracy, who's this sort of like tomboyish girl who likes to box, who was, you know, sexually abused by her father. You've got Carlos, who was abused by his mother to the point of becoming deaf in one ear. And they're all plotting to, like, get out and just flee to California. So the John Doe character is brought to the shelter, and he becomes a patient of our main character, Dr. Dr. Maggie Burroughs. And and she notices a a newspaper clipping from Springwood, Ohio, in John's pocket. Now, there's an attempt to run away by Tracy, Carlos, and Spencer, like I mentioned, but Maggie attempts to cure the amnesia by planning a road trip to Springwood. John has a hallucination, almost wrecks the van, and in trying to collect themselves, they find the three that have just been run away. And these three, you know, visit the abandoned town, Fort, the abandoned uh, Thompson House, uh, 1428 Elm Street. And John and Maggie visit the Springwood Orphanage and discover, and this is where it gets weird, that Freddie had a child. And John believes that the reason Freddie allowed him to live is because he's that child. Um, so... Tracy's almost killed by Freddy that night. Maggie wakes her up. John went into the dream world with Tracy to try and help Spencer. He's still asleep. Uh, Maggie and Tracy take John back to the shelter. And on the way back, Kruger attacks John in the dream. And John, as he's dying, because Kruger actually kills him at this point, He tells to Maggie that the child was in fact a girl. And and, you know, this is where the big spoiler comes in. We find out that Maggie is in fact Freddy's daughter. She was born Catherine Kruger and had their name changed to Maggie Burroughs to protect her. Uh... So, yeah, this is the weirdest part of the whole thing because this other character played by Afekoto, who's just known as Doc, um, he theorizes that Freddy's power comes from, like, dream demons, as he calls them, and they continually revive him, and they believe Freddy can be killed if he's pulled into the real world. So we get, like, Freddy's, like, full backstory... Bullied as a child, abused by his foster father, uh, practiced self-harm as a teenager, and eventually killed one of his wa- killed his wife. And Freddy was basically given his powers by demons. And, yeah, honestly, that's pretty much it. I mean, 
It's just such a weird movie. Um, and there's a twist that I'm not going to talk about here. I'm going to talk about it in a later uh, episode of this month, just because it comes up again. And it's weird, the... It's kind of weird, the, like, connection there, but we'll get to that later. So, you know, this one got panned so horribly that eventually Wes Craven comes back with a new idea. And funnily enough, in kind of a little... And kind of a little bit of foreshadowing to what would come a couple of years later. Wes Craven released what's simply known as New Nightmare in 1994. It's a meta slasher film. It's standalone, so it's not part of the continuity as the other films. As a matter of fact, it takes place in our real world. So Freddy's actually a fictional movie villain who ends up invading the real world and haunts the cast and crew involved in the making of the films about him. He's a lot more menacing and less comical than he was in the later ones. He is... His mask has a lot more higher contrast on it. He's got like a trench coat over his outfit. And his glove looks a lot less like just a glove with knives on it. It almost looks like... It almost looks like an animatronic hand. Like The best way I can describe it is like... um, I don't know. Let's let's just go with like Star Wars or something. Luke or Anakin, whichever one. You know, they both lost their hands at some point. But just imagine like you took like their cybernetic hand and then just stripped all the stuff that made it look like a regular human hand off of it. So it just looks like a skeleton. So it just looks like the bones with some like metal muscle and metal tendons attached to it. Basically that's the best way I can describe it. And obviously he's got the long claws, but you know what I mean? So it's, it's the longest of the nightmare movie the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, it's almost two hours while the others are, you know, around that sort of like 90 to 100 minute mark. And it is... And it's especially funny because you get a lot of characters who come back. A lot of cast members, I mean. And... Even if they're not particularly big roles, they do they do end up playing both themselves and their characters in the movies. Like Heather Langenkamp is playing herself, but she's also playing Nancy. Uh, Robert Englund is playing obviously both Freddy and like his actual self. Uh, same thing with John Saxon. Same thing with Wes. 
And funnily enough, Craven himself actually scripted himself as a man who was like being driven insane by nightmares. And there was going to be like a little crossover with uh, Michael Barrowman's character from The Hills Have Eyes, but he toned that down and just had himself being himself in a sort of big house in the Hollywood Hills. And he also kind of... um, They also kind of wrote it around the uh, Northridge earthquake in Los Los Angeles that was happening by the time uh, production happened. I think there were already some. I think there were already some scenes in the film from the beginning, but they wrote around it. Um, uh, Depp was. Wes Craven was actually going to ask Johnny Depp to come back, but according to himself, was too timid to ask. Although Depp did say he would have been happy to do it after they ran into each other after the film's release. Um, and, you know, we'll get into Scream later this month, but I just figured I'd bring this up as a good... a good example because it was under the title of Nightmare 7 The Ascension and this was like the poorest performing one of the whole bunch but it was one of the better sequel it was one of the better sequels both in terms of fan and critic reception and you know like I said this was pre-scream but I feel like this is I feel like the style that Wes did here was what at least partially gave him the inspiration to do what he did with Scream, you know, do the, you know, basically make a straight slasher movie, but also kind of like be self-referential humor, just poke fun at a lot of the genre cliches, that kind of stuff. And to the point, I think... Uh, there's a nice bit of that in the end credits here because Robert Englund is credited as, as playing himself, but Freddy Krueger is listed separately as playing himself in the end credits. So, you know, that's all the originals. And then, okay, now comes the part that makes me angry. Because, yeah, in 2010, and I know... I know I skipped over Freddy vs. Jason. We'll go back to that. But the company Platinum Dunes produ- with Michael Bay as a producer. Oh, boy. Ugh. Yeah, anyway. So basically, they tried to do what they did with Friday the 13th the year before. Oh Well, they tried to do what they tried to do there. And frankly, as far as I'm concerned, they failed horribly both times. But they basically tried to combine elements from, like, all the different movies to make sort of, like, basically turn a highlight reel into a movie. But it didn't really work. They had... They changed a whole bunch of the names, aside from having the final girl here also named Nancy. But 
And again, to their credit, they tried to use... They basically use... But that didn't... They couldn't really make a good story out of that. They felt so they just used Craven's original storyline, but tried to make it quote-unquote scarier, which considering the fact this theory 2010s means they just made everything super dark and grungy to the point where you can't see anything in a lot of scenes. They used a lot of badly done CGI. They took any sort of humor and empathetic characters out of it. And I don't want to, like, rag on the movie too much. Like, most of the actors did a pretty good job, and I actually feel bad for Rooney Mara in it because she said her experience on the set was so bad that she nearly considered quitting acting, which I'm glad she didn't because she's a really good one. They got Jackie Earl... They got Jackie Haley, who, like I said, tried out for Glenn Lance in the original. But everything about this movie just feels like it was just sort of like kind of pointless. Like I get that they tried to make Freddy like darker, less comical. You know, he wasn't the one-liner quipping Freddy that was in all the sequels. But you know, it's just pointless stuff like changing him back from a child killer to a child molester that was killed. Um, I didn't like the fact that they use CGI to make his appearance look more like an actual burn victim because, quite frankly, the fact that Freddy didn't look like how an actual burn victim would look kind of made him a little scarier. It had a sort of surreal quality to it. And, I mean, granted, it's the most like financially successful of the franchise, but there's just nothing about it that really gets that really gets interesting. I mean the only thing that was kind of interesting was the idea that, you know the only I they teased the idea that maybe Freddie was actually innocent of the crimes that he was killed over. But no, he was guilty. So it was just a whole lot of... And I feel like if that was a big twist, that would have been at least kind of interesting. But... No, he doesn't want revenge because of, you know, wrongful killing. He wants revenge on them for disclosing their abuse. And... There's a lot of... I learned about... The only other interesting thing was I learned about the concept called microsleep. Where... If you basically stay awake for too long, you just sort of, like, go unconscious for a couple seconds. So they just start having, like, random hallucinations. Because they're trying to avoid Freddy. But, you know. You know, they tried to... As the director said, they tried to reinvent the character for a new generation, but it didn't really... It just didn't even... They just couldn't really capture anything. I can't really put this any... better than the way like Roger Ebert did 
and sorry, he gave it one star out of four and stated that he watched it with, and I quote, weary resignation. It's, it's the kind of thing that, and this is honestly the problem that I had personally with a lot of like later, um, like slasher movies or just horror remakes in the early 2000s is that they kind of became the stuff that Scream was making fun of, just had a bigger budget and more like cinematic polish to it. Which is honestly, for me at least, makes it worse because they made a less entertaining movie with a bigger budget. And, you know, I I do love this because this is my big issue with a lot of like why I hate jump scares a lot of the time. He says, is the sudden clanging chord supposed to evoke a fearful Pavlovian response? And yeah, that's the problem. Like, you know, the thing has jump scares, scream has jump scares, but those are well done ones. This one has the cliche ones where it's just a sudden jerky motion of the camera. And you just hear this really dissonant chord where it's like, okay, what you did wasn't scary. You just startled me because you woke me up. But I do like the snark Peter Travers uh, <laughs> gave when he was reviewing it. It's the Michael Bay touch you feel in the way actors register his body count. Characters go undeveloped and sensation trumps feeling. A nightmare indeed. Yeah, this was... I almost feel bad saying this, but I liked Rob Zombie's Halloween better than this. <laughs> Oh, God. Ugh. They're not terrible, but I'm going to get into those at the end of the month, but that did feel kind of gross to say. (laughs) But, yeah, we're going to circle back, and this is... And this is kind of the reason why I wanted to, like, skip Freddy vs. Jason so we could circle back to it, because I didn't want to end this... I didn't want to end this episode on, like, a, a downbeat note like that. But, so, there was a whole bunch of ideas for what they were going to do. And there was a fan desire for a crossover film with a fight between them. And I think at one point there was actually an idea to have it be a crossover with Halloween instead, which... Yeah, no. I mean, I love I love Halloween, but just seeing these two guys, seeing two people that don't talk just hack at each other would be kind of just be kind of boring. But so it was as far back as 1987 that they tried to do it. Um There was the film producer, Frank Menchuso Jr. He tried to get Tom McLaughlin to unite the studios, uh, New Line and Paramount, to do it, but they couldn't make an agreement. Uh, Sean S. Cunningham wanted to get the rights back and begin working with New Line on it. Uh, after, you know, Friday Part 8 tanked at the box office. But the negotiations fell apart. Um, after that, the rights reverted to 
bunch of guys who sold them to New Line. And director Joseph Zito even came in to try and uh, revive the project, but it didn't work. Uh, Freddy vs. Jason got put on hold because Wes Craven came back to New Line and, you know, he made New Nightmare. But Cunningham did get to make, like, Jason Goes to Hell. But that was mostly just because they had to basically use it or lose it, essentially. And, you know, Craven was kind of dismissive of the idea. But Cunningham just kept getting frustrated with how many times it was delayed over and over and over again, which is why he created Jason X, because he needed to keep the interest alive. Um, Michael DeLuca was the president of production, and he resigned, so there was even more. So there was even less support overall. And there were several, several different writers that each had their own ideas, basically. Uh... was there oh yeah they did try to offer the director's chair to both del toro and to guillermo del toro and to peter jackson but neither wanted it um sadly kane hotter did not come back uh they got Ken Kurzinger, who is a Canadian stuntman who actually worked with uh, Hotter and uh, Friday Part 8. And apparently it was because um, Hotter was, you know, taller than Robert Englund, but he wasn't, but there was still a, like, noticeable difference between Kurzinger and Englund. Um, Kurzinger was, you know, Six foot five compared to hotter six foot three, and they wanted it to be sort of the contrasted with England, who was only five foot nine. I think it was more just because you know Jason's like the big hulking brute slasher, and Freddy's this kind of like short weaselly guy, like England. England's only a little bit taller than I am, actually. I'm I'm five eight. Last time I checked, but yeah, I mean, it's not a big deal because you know Jason doesn't talk. But I always kind of liked the way Hotter portrayed him because he's got that sort of, as I said yesterday, he's got that sort of body language. He kind of like puffs out his chest and as his shoulders move, he's got like the heavy breathing. It just kind of projects this sense of anger all the time, which works with what Jason's character is supposed to be. And if I had any complaint with Kurzinger, it was really just the fact that 
He kind of looks a little robotic the way he walks around when he's not actually like killing anybody on screen. But yeah, there were also salary disputes, so They had, so they had like Catherine Isabel and Lachlan Monroe. Uh, you might recognize the latter. He was in, he was in Scary Movie. Uh, he was one, yeah, there's a cop played by the guy who, um, I forget his name, but he's one of the guys in Scary Movie. But like Monica Kina, who was the film's lead. Like, this was another, like, Betsy Palmer thing. She absolutely hated the script and only <laughs> and only agreed because she wanted, one, to get her name out there in Hollywood, and two, she also wanted, she also needed money at the time. But, you know, there were, as I said, there were, like, several different ways that they wanted the film to go. Some wanted there to be like a Freddy-worshipping cult. <laughs> Some of them wanted... At least one of the endings involved Pinhead showing up, but New Line didn't want to secure rights for the character. Some of the other script ideas include the one uh, proposed by Peter Briggs. And... I'm going to be completely honest. I've read this one. It is batshit crazy. And I am both relieved and sad that this one never got adapted. <laughs> it probably would have put New Line Cinemas out of out of business if it had flopped at the box office, given the budget. It starts at a necromancer's lair in the Middle Ages and only goes off the deep end even further. Like... It crosses, like, time periods. It goes into hell. And we find out that both characters have, in fact, been vessels of the devil himself through their entire history, and every death in their franchises was a sacrifice to him. And Satan is named Thanos in this script for reasons never quite explained, because I'm pretty sure it's not a Marvel crossover either. In a genuinely... There's a clever twist, actually. The idea that Jason lived on Elm Street as a child and that his parents were in the mob that killed Freddy. It makes no sense. It rules, but it makes no sense. There is a funny moment from the script, though, where someone's wondering where who would win in a fight between Spawn and the Mask. And one of them says, I don't know, Spawn, but you gotta have a proper story to make it work because they're from different universes. So a nice bit of meta humor going off that. There was another script where we find out that, you know, Jason was actually Freddie's kid <laughs> and that, yeah, we were going to find out at some point in that script that, uh, Pamela had in fact been raped by Freddie and 
you know, Jason was the offspring of that. There's another one where it ends with the two of them having a boxing match in hell. Like an actual boxing match. There's like the ring where the ropes are made of entrails. We find Ted Bundy as the ring announcer and he just gets shot by Lee Harvey Oswald and Jason just looks down. He's got like boxing gloves on. Again, I'm both relieved and sad because that's an absolutely kind of morbidly hilarious image to think of. There was also another one where... It, <laughs> I'm sure the fact that it was writ- that this script was written during the height of the OJ trial didn't have an effect on anything in writing it, but it opens with like Jason actually being held in court and being tried like he's just some regular garden variety serial killer. And I kid you not, there was another draft where in one of the dreams, Freddy actually snorts a girl up his nose. And she basically runs into a sentient pile of mucus with... (laughs) With a voice actor who was supposed to be Harry Manfredini, of all people. Yeah, the composer who did a lot for the Friday the 13th movies and was also a jazz soloist. So, yeah, there was just so many, like, weird ideas that, you know, I I enjoy... I really do enjoy, like, the end result, despite some of the funnier things that could have been. Um, But... It's just fun. Uh, some of the weirder. It had a bit of a troubled production again because, you know, it wasn't a lot that people were enthusiastic about as far as the actors were concerned. Um, Catherine Isabel, one of the female leads, um, reportedly said that the director kept trying to like pressure her into doing nude scenes despite agreeing to no nudity when she signed on. Um, and of course there was the famous, you know, part where, look, I'm not going to rag too hard on her about it. Cause I'm also wondering why, if everyone got so upset about it on set, why they kept it in the film. But there's a scene near the end where Kelly Rowland's character is just sort of like, you know, taunting Freddie to try and like bait him away from her friends. And I'm not going to. I'm not going to varnish it, but basically she just calls him a faggot in a Christmas sweater. Yes, those are her words. It wasn't in the script, and everyone, including England, was really upset with her over it, but I'm just wondering why that they kept why they kept it in the movie, if that was the case. And I mean, yeah, like, when, and I mean, when Freddy sees her, he does kind of licks his lips and goes dark meat, but, you know, that's, that was in the script, like, England didn't just ad-lib that. So, yeah. But there's a lot of funny moments. There's a scene where one, like, stoner character falls asleep and he hallucinates this, like, you know, like the caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland, but it's got, like, Freddy's face. Uh, there's a lot of genuinely creepy moments, like, they go into this section of the hospital where everyone's, like, in a coma. And... At the same, at some point, all of them just like sit up and they start speaking in one voice with like bandages over their eyes and they're just like weeping blood. 
So, yeah. Freddy vs. Jason, not a great entry for either one, honestly, but it's just plain stupid fun. Robert Englund's back, and he's got... He's doing the snarky Freddy again, which I really do enjoy, despite how stupid it got in the later Nightmare on Elm Street sequels. So yeah, that's a good way to end what, Jesus Christ, has turned out to be the longest episode I've, I've made so far. It's almost a half hour and a half. But I hope you all enjoyed this, as long as it is, as much as I've been rambling. Uh, God, I'm sorry, this... The air conditioning has just not been working where I am. It's really hot and humid in here. So I'm going to let you go. I hope you'll tune back in tomorrow. Have a good night and stay safe. Bye-bye.